With his unique perspective on the medical legal system, here's Victor Cotton. Welcome to the Law and Medicine Podcast. Today's topic is another misguided medical legal analysis. I recently read an article that provided analysis of a medical malpractice case critiquing what the doctor had done. This type of article is quite common, and I'm repeatedly frustrated at the extremely low quality of the analysis. So what I'm going to do today is critique this critique, and in doing so, my goal is to demonstrate the proper approach to the law. The case involved a young woman who presented with a below-the-knee DVT. She was otherwise well and had no chest pain or shortness of breath. Her history was otherwise insignificant, but she was taking oral contraceptives, and she was admitted for anticoagulation with IV heparin. Now, even though this case occurred a few years ago, before the advent of the newer oral anticoagulants, it's not clear to me why this woman was hospitalized. She didn't have significant pain or swelling. She had no other symptoms. The clot was below her knee, and it was likely related to her being on oral contraceptives. It would therefore have been acceptable, even preferable, to manage her without hospitalization and without any coagulation. But they chose to admit her, which I'll assume was also acceptable. And she was started on heparin and then Coumadin with the goal of discharging her once her INR reached 2. The article says that this approach was mandated by the decision tree, and I don't know what that is. Medical legal experts never seem to be very good with medical or legal terminology, but I'll assume it's some type of anticoagulation protocol. A hypercoagulable panel was also sent, but the results wouldn't be available for at least a week. A few days later, the patient's INR was up to 1.6, not quite where they wanted it, but it was Christmas Eve and she begged to go home. The physician was apprehensive about sending her home, and I'm not sure why, but he surmised that her INR would probably be therapeutic by morning, so he stopped the heparin and discharged her home on Coumadin. Unfortunately, and unbeknownst to the doctor, the patient had protein C deficiency, which can create problems when you start Coumadin, and this caused her to suffer extensive skin necrosis requiring multiple surgeries. She then sued the physician for stopping the heparin prematurely, and the next sentence says, Not surprisingly, the case resulted in a substantial settlement on behalf of the physician which I find very surprising. The article goes on to say that the doctor made a mistake when he changed the plan and stopped the heparin to accommodate the patient's wishes, and the authors conclude by emphasizing that we should always stick to our treatment plan even when the patient pressures us. And I find that to be incredibly ironic, because if this doctor had stuck to his plan and made the patient stay, the authors would have faulted him for not listening to the patient, for not engaging in shared decision-making, and for not being culturally sensitive to the importance of Christmas. The end result is that this physician was wrong because he changed his plan to accommodate the patient, and he would have also been wrong if he stuck to his plan and didn't accommodate the patient. This is one of the defining features of modern risk management, 
blaming the doctor. No matter what happens, it's always the doctor's fault, and every lawsuit could be avoided if we doctors would just listen to what these experts are saying. But this guy didn't listen. He got sued, and he had no choice but to settle. And what I want you to see here is that this settlement had nothing to do with the care that was provided, nor was it due to any shortcomings in our legal system. This doctor was forced to settle for one reason, and that reason is that none of these people know how malpractice is defined, they don't know what the standard of care is, and they therefore have no idea how to defend a doctor. Every time I read one of these articles, they define malpractice in a different way. And I don't know which version they used here. It's hard to tell because none of them are correct and they all result in large settlements on perfectly defensible cases. So I'll just work through the approaches that they might have used, explaining why each of them is wrong, and then I'll tell you how this case could have been easily defended and won. The first definition of malpractice these folks use is known as strict liability, and here's how it works. If you give a medication and the medication causes a problem, you're liable. It doesn't matter if it was the right medication or the right dose or if the patient would have died without it. If you gave the medication and the medication caused a problem, you're liable. Now, no court has ever applied this standard to a malpractice case, but a lot of medical legal people apply it anyway. A few years ago, a physician who was the president of a malpractice insurance company was telling me about a case they were trying to defend. It involved a patient who had been admitted with sepsis, and at that time, aminoglycosides were one of the drugs of choice. So the patient was given an aminoglycoside. Everything was done properly, and the guy recovered. But the drug had caused him to go deaf in one ear. Ototoxicity is a known complication of aminoglycosides, but as I said, the patient needed the drug and they used it correctly, but he went deaf and he sued. So after telling me about this case, he shook his head and said, yeah, this one's pretty tough to defend. Do you have any suggestions? And I about fell over. The physician used the drug of choice in an appropriate manner, and this guy who was running a malpractice insurance company had no idea how to defend it. So I tried to explain why this was entirely defensible, but he never did get it because the rule that he was taught and the rule that he used is strict liability. If you prescribe a drug and the drug causes a problem, then you're liable. And under that standard, your only hope of defending yourself would be to find someone else to blame for this patient's deafness. For example, if you could show that when the patient was in the ICU, a nurse accidentally stuck a pencil in his ear and ruptured his eardrum, then you could blame the nurse for the deafness and you'd be off the hook. But otherwise, you're liable. So if we apply this type of reasoning to our case, the doctor prescribed Coumadin and the Coumadin caused skin necrosis, 
so the doctor is liable. That's not legally correct, but it's one of the ways that risk management experts turn perfectly defensible cases into large settlements, and they might have done that here. The second way that they could have decided that this case was indefensible involves the could-have, would-have methodology. And here's how it works. This doctor could have kept the patient on heparin, and had he done so, it would have prevented the skin necrosis, so the doctor is therefore liable. If you could have done it, and it would have changed the outcome, then you are liable under the could-have-would-have standard. This approach, which has also never been recognized by any court, relies on a retrospective analysis that's diametrically opposed to the prospective standard used in the American legal system. And because our system uses a prospective standard, medical malpractice isn't defined by what you could have done. It's defined by what you should have done. If you should have done something and you didn't, then that's a problem. But the mere fact that you could have done something is completely irrelevant to the concept of medical malpractice. Unfortunately, most medical legal folks don't understand the difference between prospective and retrospective, which leaves them free to apply the could-have-would-have methodology and conclude that cases involving perfect medical care are indefensible. The third approach that they could have used involves informed consent. And under this approach, we first determine whether the physician obtained informed consent and told the patient about the potential risks. If he did, then he's defensible, and if he didn't, then he's indefensible. So in this case, the question would be whether the physician told the patient that Coumadin could necrose her skin and obtained her consent for that possibility. And because there's zero chance that any doctor would do that, this doctor most likely didn't do it, and this case is therefore indefensible. Unfortunately, this approach is also completely incorrect. Although it's widely believed that informed consent covers you for whatever risks you discuss, informed consent doesn't cover you for anything. Informed consent exists so that the patient can make an informed decision. That's its only purpose. We inform the patient of what we'd like to do, and he gives us consent to do so. Informed consent grants us permission to do something, but it doesn't cover us for any of the risks of that something. The way we cover ourselves is to practice medicine properly, always delivering the standard of care. And the rule here is very simple. If you deliver the standard of care, you cover all of the risks and you cannot be held liable. And if you don't deliver the standard of care, you are exposed to the risks and you could be held liable. And that rule applies regardless of whether you told the patient about the risks and regardless of whether he consented. What I'm saying here is that informed consent has nothing to do with malpractice and that it's completely irrelevant to any analysis of malpractice, but a lot of experts use it anyway. 
And if that's what they did here, then they would have concluded that the case was indefensible because the doctor didn't tell the patient about the risk of skin necrosis. The fourth method that they might have used is what I call the sympathy and fear approach. And here's how it works. If the patient's situation evokes a lot of sympathy, then the people defending the case fear that the jury will award a lot of money. So they declare the case indefensible and they settle. That's the sympathy and fear approach. And it's possible that they used it here. But my suspicion is that they settled this case by using the strict protocol approach. And here's how it works. If a protocol has been violated, then the case is indefensible and you must settle. So in this Coumadin case, the decision tree said that the INR had to reach two but the heparin was stopped when it was only 1.6. This violated the protocol, and the patient suffered a complication. This is therefore indefensible, and we must settle. If I were to guess, I would say that this is how they arrived at their decision to settle, but it's hard to know because every approach they use is wrong, and they all lead to large settlements. The proper way to analyze a malpractice case, and they never use this approach, but the proper way to analyze a case is to look at what the physician did and determine whether it was reasonable under the circumstances. The standard of care is defined, and this definition's been valid in every state for a hundred years. The standard of care is defined as what a reasonable physician would do under the circumstances. If the physician's actions were prospectively reasonable, then his actions were within the standard of care and he is not liable for malpractice. It's as simple as that. And this is really important, so I'll say it again. If the physician's actions were prospectively reasonable, and his actions were within the standard of care, he is not liable for malpractice, and he is completely defensible. So let's apply that analysis to this case. The patient had a below-the-knee DVT. She's otherwise well. Her leg isn't terribly swollen or painful. She has no symptoms of an embolus, and her INR is 1.6. And the question is whether it was reasonable to send her home. And it doesn't matter if it's Christmas Eve, and it doesn't matter if she wants to stay or go, and it doesn't matter what the decision tree says, whatever that even is. The only question that matters is this one. Based on her medical condition at the time, was it reasonable to send her home? Well, she didn't need to be anticoagulated in the first place. Yes, she was admitted for anticoagulation, but it wasn't required. And even though the physician started her on heparin, he's allowed to change his mind and stop the heparin as long as he does so in a reasonable manner. So it's possible that he said to himself, you know, this was a soft admission and anticoagulation isn't required. She's doing well and she wants to go home, so let's discharge her. It's possible that he said that, and if he did, it sounds entirely reasonable. Let me say it differently. If admission wasn't required, how is it unreasonable to discharge her? 
It's not. And if anticoagulation was optional, how is it unreasonable to discharge her before she's anticoagulated? It's not. So what he did here was reasonable, and reasonable care is always defensible because reasonable care is the standard of care. Now, you're probably thinking, but what about the protein C issue? Well, the overall suspicion of protein C deficiency had to have been very low. It's a rare condition. It's her first clot, and they had another reason for the clot. And further, even if she turned out to have protein C deficiency, many patients with that condition can take Coumadin without a problem. So the overall risk of her developing Coumadin-induced skin necrosis was very, very low, certainly not high enough to make it unreasonable to send her home. Who among us would have looked at this situation and said, well, it's extremely unlikely, but if she turns out to have protein C deficiency, stopping the heparin could cause a coagulopathy, so we should probably keep her another day or two. Who would have said that? Nobody. And even if somebody did say it, it would have been completely reasonable to disagree, and if it's reasonable, then it's within the standard of care. So my assessment of this case is that it was entirely reasonable to send her home. Yes, someone might have kept her, and that would have prevented the problem. But that's the could-have-would-have approach, and that's never correct. The only thing that matters is that it was reasonable to send her home, which means that doing so was within the standard of care, and this case was therefore easily defensible and very winnable. Now, you might be thinking, okay, but what about the skin necrosis? It's irrelevant. The skin necrosis is the result of the care, and we don't litigate the result. We litigate the care. Remember, we're held to a standard of care, not a standard of result, and in this case, the care was reasonable. Now, you might be wondering, but if they put you on the witness stand, how would you explain the skin necrosis? I don't have to explain it. All I have to do is show that my decisions were reasonable. But if somebody wanted an explanation, I'd say that the skin necrosis was an unfortunate byproduct of the standard of care, that the standard of care always contains risk, and sometimes that risk materializes. But what materializes is not within my control. The only part that's within my control is the care that I deliver, and I delivered the standard of care. The end result is that this case was easily defensible and very winnable. But the article says that it was no surprise that they had to settle for a large sum of money. And in a sense, I'm not surprised that they settled. They have no understanding of patient care and no understanding of basic legal concepts. They don't even know the definition of medical malpractice, so how could they possibly defend a case? Of course, they settled. That's not surprising. If they're looking to surprise me, they can start by articulating a legal principle that's been recognized somewhere in our country. That would be a big surprise. Thanks for listening.
You have been listening to Victor Cotton, physician, attorney, and founder of Law & Medicine. If you'd like to learn more about us or support our efforts, we invite you to visit our website at lawandmed.com. We offer a variety of online educational courses for which you can earn Category 1 CME credit. Many of our courses can be used to meet your malpractice insurance company's requirements for a policy discount. And if you receive a CME allowance from your employer, we can provide you with a receipt which can be used to obtain reimbursement. This has been a production of Law & Medicine, Hershey, Pennsylvania. All rights are reserved.